This is an epic quest across an ancient, magical kingdom. As Uma, a reluctant young shaman, seeks her revenge against the king who killed her family. But, guided by her otherworldly allies and unlikely friends, Uma unlocks a whole new world. This is Paula Schmidt, and thank you for listening. Part 2, Chapter 25 From her room hidden above the catacombs, Uma watched the executioners leave. Tolu's big arm was slung around Ogadai's shoulder. He was lightheaded, and trying to disguise it as Ogadai lifted the carpet for them. That girl is blue-skin murder in a silk jacket, Tolu, she heard Ogadai say, but she'll make us rich. It was a dawn the color of bone, but the new day was already full of life. As they walked, the men heard distant shouts, saw merchants' carts bumping out of doorways towards the intersections of the Medina. A young woman darted past them in the alley with baskets of fruit, her fingers stained red with their juice, the gems of cut fruit dropping light behind her. In every crisis, opportunity, right, brother? Tolu said weakly, patting Ogadai's chest. You're King Rad, all right. Don't think I don't know it. But you're my King Rad. Uma watched them disappear and then swept back down the stairs. For her comings and goings into the maze of Palmstone's Medina, she used a small servant's door at the end of the maintenance way she'd taken the Chiriclo men down last night. Palmers did not like to see those who maintained their dead, and the alleyway it led into was little used. Once out in the alley, she was quick. But for the fronds of herbs and grasses dipping in her wake, the slender, cloaked figure might have been only a bird's passing shadow. Ariane, the elderly Yang herbalist, was awake and already distilling, testing the strength of her vapors by waving the plumes of fragrant herbal steam up from her chattering pots towards her calm, wizened face. She was a smiling, lively woman with wild vines of thick gray hair standing up in an array around her small head. Her stooped body was strong, her slim golden hands and eyes as quick as birds. She heard the familiar footfall, and turned, smiling, to see the vampire at her door. Uma, Arian said, warmly. She'd seen the girl every few days since Uma had first appeared, out of nowhere, to ask if she might heal Arian's husband, Diatsu, from the wasting illness which had ravaged him for years. Not even their local holy oil had been able to help him. But Uma did. She'd needed a safe place to stay after that, and a Yang ally to help her secure what she needed. And Ariane and Diatsu did many things to help her over the seasons. Setting aside extra food and warm clothing, keeping the girl a secret, except from a handful of trusted friends in need of the special healing only a gifted Wutar could provide. Uma interested Ariane professionally, she knew many deadly venoms could heal when taken in a small enough dose. Vampires had the power to cure just as much as they did to kill. It pained Arian to see such a vital young person so alone in the world and so desperately lonely for a world that no longer existed. A person had little hope without their tribe. And how the girl had confided in her about Ula Lee. The strange... Foreign land of the vanished Wutar people seemed almost familiar to Ariane now. Many times, Uma had confided to Ariane that she didn't know how to go on. Of course, she was learning a great deal about healing from Ariane and from her own allies in the spirit world, and her body was changing and her mind was growing, but for what? She didn't even know what to want in the world anymore. When everyone she loved, was dead. You, Arian, I love you, 
And I love Diatsu, Uma said. Please don't misunderstand me. I meet individual Yang and they are kind. But collectively, your people destroyed mine. I love the individual and hate the collective. How can that be? I suspect this is true for both sides, dear, Ariane said. For who could hate you if they knew you? And yet, the idea of Wutar makes many good Yang a monstrous beast. Uma looked down. Monstrous beast. That was her. She who least deserved to survive, and yet was the only one left upon the sands. What is the point of anything, Aunt? She said. Let me think on this, child. I do not know what to tell you. But Arya never found an answer, and Uma never asked again. Aunt, Uma said now, taking Aryan's hands in her own. You took me in when anything might have happened, and I am grateful. Those Chiriclo dogs found you, didn't they? Aryan gestured for them to sit on one of the benches Diatsu had carved into the wall, beneath the long, trailing fronds of drying herbs. Uma nodded. They had need. They sat, and Aryan reached out to pat Uma's hands. What you did for us means everything to me. You know I love my crazy old wingding. I know we'll have to say farewell someday. But not today. Uma smiled, dipping her head. Studying with you and Diatsu has meant much to me also. And now you must go? You found friends? Aryan said. Uma nodded. It was safer to say no more than that although it was clear enough that she was leaving with the Chiriclo. And Uma knew Diatsu, the herbalist husband, was in the other room, listening to them fondly while he pretended to rest. He liked to pretend to sleep so Arian wouldn't fuss over him. Diatsu was happiest when he did the doting. As long as I'm here, I'm a danger to you and Diatsu both. Uma reached into her cloak. I have a gift for you. Oh, from the sea! Aryan lit up, wiping her hands before she took the shell from Uma, carefully, into her own lap, to study the silken pink interior. She traced them with wondering fingers, the blushing whorls, pale as dunes. Uma lifted it up to Aryan's ear. I can hear the sea, the herbalist said, utterly delighted. Uma smiled, her hands trembling with happiness, Arian gestured for Uma to rest the shell again in her lap. Diatsu will be pleased. Uma, if I may, you are brave, a survivor. You asked me once what the point of surviving is, and I have thought much on this for you. I know you have, Uma said. The point of life is just to be alive, to be good, to enjoy ourselves and enjoy one another. Choose to be alive, Uma. But the girl had withdrawn behind her eyes. I know, bless you, that you want revenge, Arian said. My people have wronged yours, terribly. Uma looked down. Revenge was the only thing she wanted. And yet, she was less sure every day about the rightness of wanting it. So what did this make her, a creature with but one task, and no hope of fulfilling it? Arian broke into Uma's thoughts. This is your real life, too. Enjoy it. Do you understand? Life is a gift. Use this gift that Goddix has given you. Uma flinched at the word. Enjoy this time we have in the sun, Arian said gently shuffling up towards the far corner of her kitchen, which hung with drying herbs, great bags of beans and seeds. Eat green food, drink clean water, find your tribe, my girl. Perhaps they will not look like you, but somewhere, girl, I know there are other hearts like your own. You must find them and dedicate yourself to life. Arian found what she was looking for and came back, 
pressing a large, soft bag into Uma's hands. This is for you. They are from your Ulali. Inside it, Uma saw the tiny, perfect grains so familiar from her childhood and held them up to her face. She closed her eyes, hungrily breathing in the beloved, toasty scent, instantly overwhelmed with a vertigo of pleasure and longing. I never thought I'd ever, ever smell these again. I've been saving them for you. For a special occasion, Ariane said. Your people love these seeds, no? You can eat some and grow the others to have with you wherever you go. Uma held the bag to her heart. Thank you, my friend, thank you. You will remember what I've said, yes? Arian laughed. After all, why not? She anointed Uma's forehead from the jar of palmstone oil she always kept open on her counter. You stay well, Uma of Ulali, and may the blessings of Godex always be upon you. Aryan closed the jar and pressed that too into Uma's hands. May you find your peace. Uma fled from the warm kitchen, but froze in the doorway. Her head bowed. Take a smile with you, child, Aryan said softly. Uma lifted her face to the sky seeming to find there the resolution that she needed. Walk with the wind, Arianne. She left. The old woman stood looking a long time after Uma disappeared around the corner. The swaying creak of mongers' carts gave way to bartering shouts and music. Incense curled up from doorways as households rose into the new day. Diatsu came up behind Arianne placing his hand on her shoulder. You can't save them all, my love. Perhaps not. But for a little while, perhaps we did help one. She took her husband's hand. It was soft with age, his skin fragile atop the bird-like bones. But when Ariane looked up at Diatsu, she still saw the boy behind his eyes, the treasured, joyful friend of her own distant childhood and overlaid upon that boy Arianne knew so well. As Diatsu looked down at her from beneath the mask he now wore of an old man, she also saw the proud gaze of the leader who tirelessly helped generations of apothecary cast children to learn the patience of the herbalist's trade. Diatsu's careworn skin, made soft by his tireless smile, by his hard work and illness and survival, a beloved remainder of their long, unbroken string of days together. Not one day of which was ever guaranteed to them, and so each had been a gift from Godex. Days of love, golden as harvest leaves. Arian brightened, smiling up at all her diatsus. Perhaps more than one, my love. Yes, diatsu said. Perhaps not as much as they have helped us, though, our children. Diatsu held her tightly. Aryan often spoke of their students as their children, but he was surprised to hear her include a wutar with their own kind. Where will she go, he said, leaning out into the alley, as if the passage of the mysterious blue child might have left a divining mark upon the air. Nowhere to speak of, my dear, Aryan said. Chapter 26 Uma Veiled deep in her yang disguise, Uma strode out from Palmstone to see the Chiriclo camp arranged in the distance atop a swell of scrub grass. The disorderly ring of carnival wagons were ringed around an early night fire. While lopes wandered about grazing, the soft jingle of the seashells woven round their necks carrying faintly in the breeze. As she stood looking, one wagon came apart from the rest, pulling up now to the city gates, straight towards Uma, painted with ash and powdered seashells in the half-light of dusk. It had a magic, storm-lit quality. Tolu was driving it. The lope reins tossed easily across his lap. She tried not to seem relieved, 
traveling alone among the Yang, terrified Uma. He smiled down at her. Well, do you like it? She clambered up beside him quickly, leaning back with a shy grin to peek through the dramatic, black, long-fringed curtains behind the driver's bench. Inside, she saw generously stuffed cushions and Chiriclo-style kitchen things, including a portable fire pot. There was a shuttered little altar cove on one wall, and a small, wide ladder laid across the floor, one that served as porch steps in the evenings. Curiously, all of it was brand new. It's yours, you know, Tolu said, almost shyly. Then, as if he couldn't bear Uma's silence, the executioner repeated himself. Do you like it? he said. And then Uma knew he'd made it for her himself. Her face clouded. I can't accept it. Let someone be kind to you for once, Uma of Ulali, Tolu said. You, one Ling who would stand with her fist raised against the whole world. But we, Chiriklo, are not against you. We are with and for you, Uma. Wait and see. It was a long time before Uma spoke again. Her cloak drifted out beside her as he drove them towards the encampment, its dark cloth vacillating like her own thoughts. The Chiriklo's movable village and her possible place in it became more real to her with their every jounce across the scrub. The hot, greasy smell of cooking coals threaded towards her. It was full dusk now. I would be beholden to no one, Uma said finally. But I am beholden to you, Tolu. I thank you. Friend, he said. She smiled. I thank you, friend. He pulled up to their caravan and helped her dismount. There was a wet pulse of insects, of tavern music coming from behind them, from within Palmstone's walls. The other Chiriklo hung back, watching from a distance as Tolu showed Uma how to remove the lope's harnesses and to hobble them so they might graze, but not too far. All the while, Uma couldn't take her eyes off the pearl-white wagon, self-illumed in the stubbly grass. Finally, Tolu left her to settle in. Take your time, he said. But join us at nightfire. We've plenty of bock and fat nut. I don't... No matter, Tolu waved his hand. We all remember a time when our hands and bellies were empty. Just bring a story with you, Wenling. As the days became seasons, and the scent of palmstone faded from their wagons, Tolu's name for Uma held Wanling. It made her feel lonesome, but loved. And then finally, the name gave her a strange, fierce pride in being the last of her kind. For no matter how far they traveled, every rumor of Wutar always turned out to be that of a long-disappeared ghost. And truly now, she realized. The shadow of my people has rolled back from the world and is no more, except in me. One day, Uma woke to find her caravan was christened across the front in Tolu's large, careful script, One Ling's Own. Chapter 27 The Yang soldier crumpled wearily onto the painted steps of Uma's wagon, holding his head in his hands. His long black hair was wildly rumpled on one side, as if he'd thrashed about all night, which he had. He sat looking out at the world from between his fingertips. The pale fire of his village was scarcely visible, but it pressed on his awareness just the same, through the soft, endless blue of dawn thrilling over the scrub dunes. The Chiriklo murmured behind him at their morning fires, stretching and warming their hands, drinking their infamous fat nut tea. He could smell the dizzyingly rich sweetness of it as vividly as if a cup were being served to him directly. Rafe cupped his fingers, realizing with wonder that he could feel each one. He turned them, marveling. Couldn't even remember the last time he'd possessed feeling in his hands. 
the last time he'd been able to feel his children's soft hair, the warmth of their shoulders near his own as they stalked rabbits. But no, Rafe wiped his eyes, realizing. That wasn't him. That wasn't his memory. That was his memory of his own father. Rafe had never taken his girls hunting. I'll do better by you, he said quietly to himself. I will. The stairboards creaked behind him. What a wonder the world is, Rafe said, looking back at Uma. I never noticed. The musky scent the vampire wore, so unsettling to him at first, now curled around him comfortingly as she joined him. Her dark, silent form seemed to Rafe the most restful, beautiful thing he'd ever seen. I feel now that death is a construct, Rafe said. Death is a mother. That in some way we must go on living after death, even more deeply than before. She smiled at him. I'm grateful to be alive, but you've taken away my fear of death. Rafe laughed like a boy, his hands on his knees. I never believed I could witness the mystery myself. I hoped I would, but I believed such knowledge was only for the king and his holies. There is a reason your people have massacred mine for generations, Uma said. Your leaders don't want you to know you don't need them. You only need your community. He nodded. You've been very kind. Now, you are tired, and I must leave you to rest. Rafe stood and bowed to her deeply. My people have done yours irreparable harm, yet you shared your great gift with me, Uma. I'll never forget it. I thank you. May you be beloved of gods, Rafe, Uma said, raising one hand up to him in a sleepy farewell. If heaven wills it, Rafe said, respectfully, stepping down into the grass. For a Yang, especially a soldier, to even acknowledge the existence of multiple gods was a sacrilege, punishable by death. If the wrong Yang overheard them, Rafe would be stoned to death where he stood. Uma blinked, and he nodded, knowing she understood. I will not forget, he said again. He turned and mounted his lope awkwardly. Rafe was used to lizards and having handlers hold his lizard for him, but all that would have attracted too much attention. Still, it was easy enough to see he was one of Tensing's men. Uma stood. Remember we can learn from things or be enslaved by them. Even milk. Hold this thought lightly, Rafe. Tulu and Ogadai watched from their morning fire. Although Uma always situated her caravan facing outwards for privacy, Tulu could see her stretching her neck and shoulders after the soldier left. Even from a distance, he saw how tired she was. Word of Uma's abilities traveled ahead of them everywhere they went, bringing ample trade from the families of those who came to be healed. It was a welcome draw, aside from Tulu's carnivalry. Uma leaned against Silvern, her new catling. He was beautiful and fast, with strong yet delicate legs, a graceful neck, and a powerful chest. But best of all, Silvern was affectionate and deeply attuned to his master, as if he understood the burden his girl carried and wanted to share it. Silvern wickered as Uma scratched his withers, sagging into her with such pleasure she laughed. We'll both fall. Then she realized she had an audience and sobered. Ogadai. Uma glared at him. What do you need? If the Yang upset you, Ogadai began. Uma shook her head, curring away to Silvern's other side as the catling bared its long teeth at the caravan leader. It's okay, boy, she said, stroking him. He can't help being himself. I can see you're upset, Ogadai said. Or unsettled, whatever you want to call it. We can all see it, though. You're tired, and that makes you vulnerable. But others should never have the power to unsettle us. It means you need to get right with yourself. Perhaps, Uma said stiffly, we should also never presume to know what is best for others. Sometimes the best intentions carry the greatest harm. I may be young, but I can handle this, Ogadai. 
he leaned back on his heels. Oh. There is nothing you can do to help me, regardless. Pausing just long enough. Ogodai lifted his chin and then strode away, shaking his head. This is my task, Uma whispered to herself. This is my task. Silver, come on, I'm tired. Time for bed. Tulu grinned at Ogodai as he came shuffling back. Uma's opinion of Ogodai was not a secret. How is she? Ogodai grunted. Sometimes we're the fire, sometimes we're the wood. Well, look at you, worrying sick over your flock. Ogodai snorted, settling back down beside Tulu. For every healing the Wundling brings come twenty trades. We need crowds for our mission, brother, and for that, we need her to stay well. Sounds familiar, Tulu said. They watched Uma lead Silvern up the stairs into her wagon. It was her ritual after healing. Now she would sleep with the animal all day, or whatever it was that vampires did to rest. Ogodai shuddered. Dirty creature that she is. Tulu shook his head, smiling merrily down at his tea. Oh, that sounds familiar too. Chapter 28 Uma and Orayaku Orayaku, could I talk to you? Uma said. Her dear Chirklo friend, Orayaku, turned towards her grinning. Sure if I can talk to you. The young acrobat patted the warm stone beside him. Come on up and rest your bones. Uma leapt up. What do you have in your hands? The harsh weather and long nights had carved wrinkles into Uma's face in spite of her youth. She had wrinkles like long cat's whiskers creasing merrily alongside each eye, mint ash coal smudging into them. She leaned towards Oriaku girlishly, and he brushed the stray ash from her cheeks. Close your eyes and I'll show you. She felt Oriaku wave the whatever it was at her closed eyes and sighed. It's hot, so that feels nice. Just wait, Oriaku said. The scent from the flower he held swept round them both. It was haunting, almost ethereal, like music heard in a dream or from a great distance. Light dappled, rain swept. What is that? Uma said. He laughed. Sweet leaf? Oh, it's beautiful. It's gone, she said. It plays with you, Arayaku said. Such a funny little plant. Not much to look at, so it's hard to find. And just because you can smell it nearby doesn't mean it actually is nearby. It goes here, there, wherever it will. Like you? <laughs> like you, more like. I haven't seen you for days, she said. I met someone, he said. Oriaku, who took joy in outrageous beauty. He moved through the world with large, sweeping gestures, so that all eyes were on him no matter what he did. He wore his tunic nipped in, suggestively at the waist, and each of his truncated legs, for Arayaku had lost both his legs when just a child, was bound and tasseled, so that his every somersault and handspring was a sight to behold. He dressed his eyes in coal that whirled and sleekly tapered across his tanned cheekbones, and lately he'd taken to coaling his eyebrows and shaving half his head, while wearing the other half long. For travelers to be beautiful, to be noticeable, Wherever Yang's soldiers traveled was dangerous. It was safer to take one's pleasure in small, secret things. A fragrance. A necklace beneath one's cloak, a quiet skill. Oriaku didn't care. He shepherded and championed beauty. He wanted to share beauty with everyone he met, with the whole world. Sometimes he even made soldiers smile. But smiling faces can hide lying hearts. And sometimes, when Oriaku went to be with the soldiers, they hurt him. He looked down. Understanding instantly, Uma wrapped her arms around her friend. Come here, my sweet leaf. He snuggled her back. Don't worry, it was wonderful, mostly wonderful. The best part is when you first notice each other, you know. That first moment is always the best. I live for it. It's like you already have a secret together. I know it's all just a stupid dance, but why not? You're sad, Uma said. They always have to go. 
Arayaku laughed, seeing Uma's expression. But honestly, that's part of the fun, too. You should... Uma wrinkled her nose. I hate them. I should hate them, too. Arayaku shivered. It is confusing. But the Yang don't hate us, either, Uma. Well, I mean, they think they do, but they don't. Anyway, life is a conversation, and you're not having it. You should show the world who you are. Dress how you want. Be who you want. What are you hiding yourself for? You know why, she said. But you're sleepwalking through your life. You're healing everyone but yourself. Uma rolled her eyes, and Arayaku threw up his hands. Oh, you don't even want to be happy. Not with a yang, she said. Well, you've got options. Tolu would love to make you happy. Ugh, Tolu, Uma said. For me, happiness has nothing to do with... He's my friend. Orayaku pretended to deliberate. Also true. You wear the fang oil Tolu gave you. Believe me, Uma said. When I can get another bottle so I have one that's not from him, I will. I'm just teasing, Orayaku said. But also that's what I'm trying to say. You should wear it more instead of saving it up, you know? Energy is a magnet. If you show the universe what you like, then maybe the universe will bring you some more. What? she said. I'm serious. I mean, take me, for example. Arayaku smiled. See how my every desire comes into my arms. The universe loves me because I love it. But you are unique and rare in all the world, my darling boy, she said. I know, I know. Arayaku fanned his hands. Keep going, don't stop. What are you finished already? She laughed. You are the Chiriklo's finest spice. Arayaku flung his head back, bouncing the backs of his shortened thighs against the warm stone where they sat, making the tassels on his pants dance. More! More! Uma hugged him, laughing. He did a perfect flip beside her. You, my beautiful Uma, you are magic itself. Arayaku kissed her. Now please, can I wear your magic robe? Uma burst out in laughter that turned heads. Of course, she said. They bounced up off the boulder and went skipping up the stairs into Uma's white wagon, Arayaku walking beside her on his hands, as they always did. A Chiriklo wagon isn't so much a home as it is an experience. Even after having lived in hers for several seasons, the little wagon called Oneling's Own still made Uma's heart sing every time she stepped inside it. The small ceiling of curved beams, the tiny windows made to let in the wind and starlight, her fragrant medicine bundles tied up to dry, hanging from knot holes and cross beams. Orayaku scampered on his hands across the soft animal skins piled across the floor, past Uma's narrow counters and tiny shelves, her earthen cookpots and the grains from Ariane, which now sprouted along one windowsill. He dove onto her bed, and she curled up beside him, both of them smiling up at the tapestry of starlight Orayaku had painted above her bed for her. At the foot of it, he'd painted Evening's Ocean, as Uma had described it to him, using a brilliant, rollicking scarlet paint he'd made from dried spices crushed into fat nut oil. Beneath the waves, he'd painted the faint shadow of the water temple Ulo, and even fainter still, the drifting figures of gods within it. For Arayaku loved to hear Uma's stories about the swimming priestesses floating from room to room in the water temple, how they made offerings of shell and sacred sands, opening the containers of dyed sand slowly, letting the color dazzle out by rich degrees, tinting Ulo's sacred feast halls green and blue and lavender. Uma could describe this for him by heart, though she'd never seen it. It was part of her childhood, part of the fairy tales told to the children of Ulali, how offerings of blue brought the rains, and green brought harvest, and lavender brought the Wutar prosperity. But perhaps the shamans were more powerful then, Uma always said, wistfully. Her walls were still fragrant from Orayaku's paints, and one of their games was to smell the wall, breathing the sweetness. But for now they only lay there contentedly, looking at the mural of stars, ocean, temple, gods. 
The ancient ceremonial robe, the one Tolu and Ogurai gave Uma that night above the catacombs, was hung now above Uma's pillows, its great skirt tenting her bed. Orayaku pressed its hem to his face reverently. I don't know why you don't wear this every day, Uma. Mm, I smell blue. Then perhaps it will rain, Uma said. Are you a happy god, then? Always with my devil in heaven, Orayaku said. Oh, let's stay here forever, she said. Chapter 29 Nor Tensing The Light of Oculus The priestesses of Oculus are one of the prince's earliest memories. Nor can see them still when he closes his eyes. The way they floated above the warm pool of the royal cave where he lay with Princess Nejmi and the rest of the royal harem. The Yang priestesses are like dancing constellations of light and shadow, murmuring the song of the universe, healing and directing the fabric of existence with their song, holding space for the king to commune directly with goddess that all might know their revelations. Even as a small boy, nor knew the holies did not have tongues. Each holy priestess and priestex carried a sacred stone in that place instead. It was one of those things everyone knew without knowing where they'd learned it, that the stones in the priestess's mouths were magic. They were the words of the endless song. That was what everyone said. How badly he wanted to see one, to feel it in his own mouth. Nor's Queen Mother Devi, a serene and strong-willed beauty from Palmstone, was rarely shocked. But when Nor told her this desire, she knelt down to him as seriously as if he'd said he wanted to hurt something holy. To touch the stones is forbidden, Devi said. Even to speak of the stones. We will not discuss this again, Nor. But, Nor, Devi straightened. Especially not at Oculus, do you understand? He nodded, imagining, as he did again now, that the color of the holy stones must be like the air of the oculus itself, redolent with incense and velvet dark, that the weight of each must be different from that from a normal rock. But would it be heavier or lighter? Nor could not decide. He lay back in the water, paddling lazily about and taking care not to splash, gazing up at the clouds of incense and the amber light of the circular opening above him the great eye of goddess. They could see him here. They were always watching, but especially here in their holy oculus. Nor was to be on his best behavior for his first time in the pool, especially because, here in this sacred space, his father was watching him, too. Of all the harem's children, Nor knew he and Nejmi were the most graceful, and he was proud to feel his father noticing this. The priestesses and priestesses circled the pool slowly, chanting, each one seemingly more beautiful than the last. They'd been betrothed to goddess by their tribes as children. The second most beautiful were offered to the royal harem. But while harem queens lived in opulent, sharp-elbowed competition for the king's favor, the holies lived their lives in trance. It was a magic sleep, Nor's oligarch Weir Wathrau had said. That low, rhythmic hum they made around the stones in their tongueless mouths, blessings, protection, communion with goddess, it ran all through Nor, giving him delicious, full-body shivers, even in the warm, buoyant cave water. The holies can't see you, not the way other people see you, we hear Rothwau said on the morning before their journey to the baths. What they see is your energy. They see your connection to goddess. Nor was confused. I thought their prayers opened the channel to goddess so that the king can receive holy mind, he said. Of course, but more truly the holy class sees, child. They will see you tomorrow, 
and they will know you are the one fit to follow in your father's footsteps, not the others. Nor was playing with a carved lizard and was tired of his oligarch. Tiny shells were inlaid all down the lizard's back like gleaming scales, and he liked to rub his thumb on them. Nor yawned. I want to reign with Nezmi. So you might. But equally so, your highness, Nezmi could be king. And where would you be then? Then I would be her queen, Nor said. Unless, where Rothwell took away Nor's toy lizard, Nezmi kills you. Then, Nezmi would reign alone. How would you like that? Nor's mother strode between them and neatly removed the lizard from Weir Rothwell's age-spotted hands. Thank you, oligarch. I would rest, Devi said. Leave us. She waited for the oligarch to shuffle out of the room. The old man's long cloak swaying behind him like a wide, sweeping tail. Then, longer still, Devi waited for the deeper hush that came only when Weir Rothwell finally closed the door behind him. She looked at Nora serenely. Sometimes it's easier to breathe when we're alone, she said softly, giving her son back his toy. Nor hoped she would crouch down to play with him, but knew she would not. He was too old for that now. Now, everyone kept explaining, it was time for him to become strong and solitary, to listen to his oligarch and to Goddick's, of course. But it was hard for Nor to believe where Rothwell was supposed to be his instrument, if a royal instrument could also look like the holy priestesses and priestesses at Oculus. Their skin and hair possessed a rich palette of tones ranging from dawn to dusk, as if the movement of time itself was embodied in their flesh. When inside the caves, they were nude, but for a sacramental sash worn across their shoulders trailing down behind them. Their hair was long and damp and loose. The different textures of each made them seem like many different kinds of rare and glorious flowers. Like the ones nodding in his mother's shade garden, lining the path the king took on the nights he came to rest with Devi in her quarters. Princess Nezmi smiled at Nor. Her large, dark eyes were dreamy and unfocused. Isn't it beautiful here, she said. To speak in the Oculus pool was forbidden, and Nor froze. He loved Nezmi as he loved his mother, as he loved sunlight and honey. But Nezmi never seemed to hear anyone else's rules. She played by her own. Nor couldn't stand it if she were to be punished. Here, now, on this magic day, their first in Oculus, he saw the Blodwens and Limpisa's families glance over at the king. Surely he'd heard this outrage from Nezma's girl, and now would take suitable action? But Nezmi's mother, Nezma, was the king's favorite. Nezma lay reclining close-eyed against the king on the stairs of the pool even now. Her long legs were visible in the shallows, one gracefully atop the other, like two long sheaves of grass, while the king rested back against her sculptured waist bathing the love of Goddicks from above. Perhaps it was only a shadow, Nor thought, but the king seemed to smile, agreeing with the girl Nezmi. Yes, it was beautiful here. Quickly, Nor squeezed Nezmi's hand under the veil of water, running his thumb across her palm, willing his friend not to speak again. He smiled at her with his eyes, feeling what Nezmi felt. The delicious woos of this magic place, sighing warm as love. Yes, beautiful. The holy murmuring quickened, weaving around them all. The king shone with happiness, lifting his face up to the oculus. Godic saw, and it was good. Nor let himself drift again, turning effortlessly in the water like a star in the sky, until something, an inner knowing, came unsettled in his mind again. He lifted his head sleepily and saw Queen Blodwin smiling down directly over him. Her eyes were dark and glassy, like twin starving voids, and he drifted almost near enough for her to grab him and drown him, instantly awake with terror, nor flailed back, breaking the spell. The whole harem stared at him, 
Queen Blodlin only smiled wider, unmoving, stroking her child Castrol's cheek. The king made a quick, irritated gesture, and Nor was lifted out from the dark pool by his thin arms and carried dripping from the sacred cave, as if he were only a useless baby. Ashamed, his mother Devi did not even turn her head. Chapter 30 Ogodai. The road to Tintern burned white with sun. Ogodai walked alongside the caravan in the brush, sweeping his staff to startle away snakes. His heart was full. He couldn't help admiring Lalora and his children. Their proud, sturdy carriage, each one of them was strong and dark and healthy. He'd provided for them well, and Lalora's father had doubted Ogodai would ever be worthy of his beautiful daughter. Look at her now, Ogodai wanted to tell the old man. She looks happy to me. Ah, but she was scolding their youngest. Little Ogo was in trouble. Ogodai listened in. Lalora had caught Ogo saying micmac, cursing like some soldier. Ogodai swept in and lifted the little boy up onto the back deck of Spellwalker, walking alongside him as the caravan went on. Ogo blinked down at him, kicking his small round legs earnestly against the oiled wood. Do you understand why your mother is upset? Ogodai said. But why can't I say micmac, Papa? Ogo said. It's a power word. It just means that you're angry. But you can't say it until you're older. Understand? Ogo's eyes went wide. No. Why? Because, uh, it's crass. Why do you say it, then? Ogo's heel drummed more slowly now. Uh, because your papa... Ogodai looked over at Lelora. Is crass? She laughed, and his heart danced. Why? Ogo said. Because... Ogodai sombered. I don't value a lot of the things Yang society cares about, like being polite or censoring emotions. But there are so many amazing words, sweetheart. Swearing is lazy. Why? Ogo said. There's better words. There's better words for everything. Being precise with words helps you to think more clearly. No, I mean, why does... I don't care about being polite either, his little boy said. Well, maybe you should give it a shot anyway, Ogodai said. Why? Because you might decide you do want to be a part of society. We don't want to uh, limit your options. Why? Well, some people like Yang society, even travelers like us. Why? Sweetie, you can ask me as many questions as you want, but at least think, think about the answers I've given you for a little while. The boy was like a peeping bird. Why? Because daddy is mortal. Why? Lalora fell back laughing. Okay, honey, give Papa a break. She lifted Ogo down, flinging one arm around Ogodai. He took her hand against his waist, smiling over at her flush. Lalora laughed. It ends with the meaning of life every time, I swear. Oh, she felt mouth deep in sweetness. There was plenty to eat for once, and the day was beautiful. Birds flew past like bits of shattered sun as the last light went scything towards darkness. I love you, my wife, Ogodai said. Oh, her Ogodai. Yes, his teeth clicked when he ate and his sway-back posture irritated her, even though he was so wonderfully tall. Ah, and that ridiculous cowlick. Yet, she loved him with the tender, all-encompassing love that only deepens with a journey together into time. Growing old side by side, seeing one another truly. We all make mistakes, she mused, but we are not our mistakes. Ogodai's large, deep-socketed eyes the pale freckle on his left eyelid, when they were young. That freckle seemed to Lelora like a lucky mark, emphasizing Ogodai's gentleness, flushing whenever he was angry or upset. Now it seemed just another mark of his mortal weakness, her husband's quick temper. Oh, but here he was, smiling at her, and she was thinking of his anger. Lelora swung his hand in hers. One long night, when they were young. They'd hidden from soldiers together in a wet ditch. 
Men were looking for her. The way Ogodide clenched his hands into fists as they lay there. I almost wish they'd try it so I could kill them for you, he said. And he'd meant it. He'd wanted to mean it. She kissed him. I love you too. Chapter 31 Nor Descent from Oculus The next morning, it was decreed the harem would return to the palace, except for Nor's mother and Nezmi's mother, who were to remain on Oculus with the king. The other queens were furious. The pretty expressions they wore at court all washed away like cheap paint, and for once, Nor was glad for Weir Rothwau's presence beside him. The shell path down the mountain was steep, narrow and winding, and he kept finding himself pressed towards the outer edge. Nor tried not to look down, to doggedly press back towards the center again. But he was small, and without the king to observe them any longer, the queens and their oligarchs all now rode atop gigantic, scrabbling lizards, even though it was more auspicious to ascend and descend Oculus on foot. Suddenly the stones beneath Nor's feet began to shift wildly. Someone behind him had deliberately tried to trip him. Nor knew one of the queens intended to kill him, even as he knew not to cry out, so not to give them the satisfaction. The rocks spun. He was sliding. He felt himself hurl out into the empty air and down the mountain, knew how his flesh would impale on the rocks, fall in pieces into the hungry river below. But suddenly... He wasn't falling. He was lifting into the air. The faithful hands of old Weir Rothwell wordlessly tucked the boy up onto his lizard before him. Nor did not protest, even though there was great honor in making the entire trail on foot. He saw now why the others rode. Without the king as witness to their behavior, safety was not guaranteed. Nor looked back past the grinning Blodwins and saw Nezmi, white face, behind them, also now astride with her oligarch. They smiled at each other weakly, as if to say, me too. Nora felt a fiercer loyalty to Nezmi than ever before. But how could he protect her when he could not even protect himself? The other queens were from mountain villages, as cruel as they were beautiful and strong. Although the king's harem brought many infants into the world, few survived infancy. Far fewer survived childhood. While the cast-pod children of the kingdom grew up together, wild and free, enjoying the skills of their trades, a childhood at court was solitary and usually short. Nor knew the others were his rivals, that they would murder him if they could. Yet it still seemed shocking that one had almost succeeded. He kept seeing the grinning Blodwins in his mind's eye, as if the women were monsters from a fairy tale, like fanged Wutars, all dressed in blood. His oligarch's lizard scrabbled heavily down the path, its great tongue torching forward, bright as heart's blood. Now and again, it playfully menaced its handlers, who quickly beat it back onto the path with spiked clubs. Nor touched its shoulders, felt how the creature's scales were hard and warm and dry, like living stones. I will make myself a stone, Nor decided, to all but Nezmi. He loved the daydreaming girl, he realized, even more than he loved sunlight and honey, even more than his mother. He looked back at her again. Nezmi smiled at him serenely and then glanced away, down at the rising carpet of their kingdom outflung all around them, and Nor loved her so much he thought his heart would burst. All that day they descended the mountain, and the canyonlands and cliff sides of the great capital city of Chalice rose into focus around them. From this height the massive airwells shone like great glittering hives, their stone walls gleaming with collected dew. The fog collection gardens hung green-spangled between the pale domes of the aristocracy, ornamenting every cliff face like great wasp nests of deathless stone, carved there by ancient 
long-dead masters. Beneath them circled the great salt-fed river, Tensing's Eel. Its coastal waters were dammed in ancient times and made to circle the holy stronghold of Chalice like an endless serpent. It was famous across Tensingland for its delicious eels. Nora's stomach growled. He was ravenous. The thought of roast eels didn't help. He straightened up against Weir Rothwau, and the old man patted Nora's thigh in a rare show of affection. Good to see things from above, eh? As Godex does, Nora said, and his oligarch laughed. Good, very good, boy. Well may you look, then. The sun drifted her gauzes across their path now, for it was late in the day. Nor squinted, pretending he could see like Godex themselves, all the way across the eel and through the jungle, into the military outpost outside Chalice, and then that he could see farther still, across the scalding desert sands and perilous mountains, all the way to Palmstone, the city of his mother's birth. One day, soon, he would leave the palace to become a man among the soldiers of Palmstone. But before that, Nor decided, he would make himself strong, all on his own. Inside him, the inner knowing moved again, as if it were a separate thing in Nor's mind. A stone, a gravity, singing with power. It began to turn, to grow heavier inside him, and more powerful still. A cynicism drawing towards itself the future atrocities and revelations that Nor would believe could only people the heart of the one true king. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be posting weekly or thereabouts, so please subscribe to catch the next segment. If you're enjoying the tale, please let me know. Subscribe on iTunes and then scroll down to leave your review. I'll read my favorites out loud here to share with all of you. If you're short on time, just tap five stars and I will dance for joy. I really will. It is the best feeling making this and knowing you're out there. I'm on Patreon, so if you want to be me some love, that would mean a lot. You can find me at patreon.com forward slash evenings kingdom. We have some cool swag with the art for evenings kingdom. My amazing, super talented sister-in-law, Psychodelicious Lex, created the logo art. I absolutely love the way she's drawn Uma. You can follow Lexi on Instagram at psychodelicious.com. Lex. She is a spectacular, radiant human and is just magic personified. Her drawings are so fun, so deeply alive, and so completely singularly Lexi. It is really an honor having her be a part of this. Anyway, so patreon.com forward slash evenings kingdom. We're also going to have annotated PDFs of the chapters and some special content. I would love to hear from everyone with their thoughts on the story, on life, maybe swap book recommendations, that kind of thing. I'm a voracious reader, and I just finished Xerxes. My God, that is about as good as stories get, you know. Madeline Miller's lyricism, the way she ended it, the entire spirit of the thing, ah, oh, I bow down. And N.K. Jemison, ha! <laughs> I am on my knees. Her Dreamblood duology blew the top of my head off. And her Broken Earth trilogy. She's one of those writers I have skipped work for. <laughs> I'm also in a way Davis rabbit hole right now. I just finished Magdalena, River of Dreams, a story of Colombia. Super, super good. I like to have some fiction and nonfiction going at the same time. So, would love your recommendations. Anyway, I digress. To beam me some love outside of Patreon, just stop by eveningskingdom.com as I read you books one and two out loud here.
I'm also writing book three in the series, and your support really helps. It buys me time to write, record, and edit. I love doing this, but each episode takes, as you can imagine, a crazy amount of time. I have a day job, so anything to help me hold time for this really helps. I'm on Instagram at Evenings Kingdom, and as you'll see if you follow me on IG, I do indeed live and record in an old school bus we converted ourselves into a cabin on wheels. This is Paula Schmidt, and thank you for listening. Please subscribe and stay tuned. The rest of the story is just down the road.